and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, today we're going to talk about a subject that we've talked about a lot on Odd Lots over the years, but I don't think we've done an episode on it recently. Do you know what it is? I mean, it could be anything, but go on. What is it? Okay, so I'll give you another hint. It's a subject that I really like and I'm interested in, and you always sort of claim that you know nothing about it and are not interested in it. Uh, it's totally not a claim, Joe, and I think I know where you're heading with this. It's the objective truth. I know nothing about the subject, and if we were to engage in this particular subject together, that would become rapidly apparent. Okay, well, we're going to do another episode about the game of poker, which I really like, which a lot of people in markets and finance like to do in their spare time. And the reason is obviously because a lot of the things that go on in uh, trading and a lot of the decisions that people have to make are similar to decisions that people have to make in poker because there is the sort of calculable aspect to it. There is math involved, but there's also a lot of psychology involved and things that uh, you just cannot brute force compute. And that's, of course, what makes markets so interesting. We've obviously hit this subject for many ways in the past. One thing that we haven't really talked about is something that a lot of people think is a very important aspect of poker, which is tells. And that is you're sitting across from someone at the other side of the table and they do something weird, like maybe they run their hand through their hair or they pick their nose or just whatever it is <laughs> weird or they put on their Joe. sunglasses and a big hand. You know, I'm just saying like different different uh, sort of impulses that people have that people at the table try to read. Right. Uh, so this is something, I, I mean, you'd have to be living under a rock not to know about this one. But yeah, there are tells and you're supposed to be able to read them. And that's going to help you in figuring out what the other person's hand is. And then maybe even if you have a terrible hand, you can still beat them using human psychology. I know this. Yes. And I think there's like, I think in the movie Rounders, which was about poker, there's some major stuff with tells. Anyway, so today we are going to be talking with a guest whose specialty is exactly this, reading poker tells and how you can sort of watch someone and look at someone and learn something about maybe what they're holding or their psychology from their physical actions. And much in the same way that other aspects of poker may have applications to other uh, things in the world, like investing and other sorts of uh, making decisions that involve risk, so too do poker tells. So without further ado, I want to bring in Zachary Elwood. He is the author of multiple books on the subject of poker tells. Uh, Zach, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Zach, what is your background and what is a tell? How would you define a tell? Well, I would say... I have a more formal definition in my book, but off the cuff, I would say it's a behavior that gives information about something, someone's hand in poker, obviously, but outside of poker, you could, you know, it just gives information about anything that they're concealing. Why are you qualified to tell us about uh, poker tells? Sure. That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, so basically I played for a living full time for about three and a half years. This was uh you know, 2004 to 2007 time period. And since then I've played, you know, on the side supplementally. Uh, and before that I, I grew up uh, playing poker and I, I've always had an interest in it. 
during the poker boom, you know, years, which were when everyone was playing poker, which was about 2003, you know, to 2008 or so, somewhere in there, I was uh, playing a lot of poker, playing playing for a living and, and, and supplementally, and I was always uh, wondering why there wasn't a better poker book, uh, poker tells book, and uh, there were some books out there, but I didn't think they were that good, so that's what led me to, you know, being inspired to, it wasn't that I thought I was some super genius at this subject, it was more more like I thought I could do a better job than what was out there currently. Well, so I know you say that you don't consider yourself a, a super genius uh, by any means, but uh, when it comes to telling tells as a poker player, how, how can you tell that you're good at recognizing tells versus just good at playing poker? Like what are the two different skills there? One thing I tell people, I always try to communicate up front is that tells are a, a small part of winning live poker, you know, because you can be a very good player and never think about tells. You can be a very, you know, a highly winning player and never think about tells. So there's kind of a romantic idea that tells are super important in the game of poker. And uh, I, I always like to make it clear to people that, you know, because experienced players know that, you know, strategy is, is the biggest part of the game. Uh, tells are sort of like the icing on the cake, something you do to get get a little bit more edge on people. And they can be really important. You know, some people I, I'd estimate after talking to a lot of experienced players, too, over the years, I think, you know, being good at reading tells can add, you know, anywhere from one to 20 percent to your win rate, just depending on how good you are strategically to begin with and just how good you are at reading tells. So there's a wide range. But, yeah, most experienced players would say the range is somewhere in that area of uh, boosting your edge. Right. Like in movies about poker, which is probably where people got this romantic notion about tells, there's obviously an overemphasis on their importance because, I don't know, it doesn't seem very cinematic to depict someone who's genuinely good at poker and folds 40 hands in a row and sort of waits until the implied pot odds uh, are make it so they should bet, which is... Not as fun. Not as fun, but it's much sexier to say that someone always does the same shift in their seat when they have a big hand or what they're bluffing. Yeah, the requirements of cinema kind of, it's, it's interesting the, how the requirements of cinematic drama, you know, affect uh, society and people's expectations, you know. But yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a much sexier side, which is one of the reasons I think, uh, you know, writing about this stuff. There's a lot of people that have written about poker strategy, you know, very good players, and it's kind of hard for them to get much attention for their books. But writing about poker tells, uh, you know, makes people listen a lot more like it's more mainstream, in other words. So since you're talking about movies, I'm curious, like in, in the movies, there's always, you know, it, it's like a really important hand. And then the opponent does something and the player is like, aha, I know that he's lying or bluffing or whatever, and it's really dramatic. So when it comes to tells, is is there a hierarchy of tells? Is like a verbal tell more important or uh, more informative than a physical tell? There's definitely a range of reliability just in general, depending on certain behaviors. I mean, there's some behaviors that I would rank as highly reliable I would that I would rely on in a vacuum without knowing anything about a player just because they are so generally reliable. And then there's other tells that you want to be, you would want to observe a player more and see what category of behavior they're falling into generally. And then, you know, there's a lot of tells that are just, you know, obviously not all tells are 100%. There's lots of tells that might make you like 60% sure it's one way or another, but that can be very important if you're in a big, you know, 
a big like on the fence scenario where you could go either way between calling or folding, you know? So even a little bit of information, if you think, oh, this makes it slightly more likely this guy's doing this, that can be valuable too. But, and also verbal, um, when you mentioned verbal, I wrote a whole book on verbal poker tells called verbal poker tells and, uh, spent eight months full time working on that and actually learned a lot doing it too, because I initially thought, oh, I won't have much to learn here. I kind of know what I want to write, but the more I spent researching and watching videos and taking notes when I played, it, I had a lot more to say than I thought. And I ended up concluding my, my final takeaway was that verbal poker tells when they're, when they're present, when there's something interesting there, when someone speaks during a hand, it's, it's uh, much more reliable than uh, physical poker tells just because they're, people are less, they don't know the patterns as much. Basically they're not as well known when it comes to verbal patterns. So people are, are looser when it comes to their talk. So the first time I ever played poker actually in a casino, I didn't know how I was going to act. And I caught myself when I was bluffing. I had no problem sort of like keeping my composure and just acting very relaxed. But when I had like a winning hand or a big hand, I noticed looking at my hands that I would shake more. And I didn't know that I didn't expect that that would happen, but it was something about myself that I noticed. So talk to us about the sort of, general framework how do how do you start let's say you sit down at a table in a tournament or a cash game in a casino you've never seen any of the players before so you don't have any sort of preconceived reads on them how do you start to collect in your mind a database of tells and uh put that to your advantage quickly yeah well that's a pretty big that's a pretty big question starting from scratch but i'll give a few things that i like to tell people uh, as far as like the most important things to look for uh, i'd say eye, eye contact and eye movement in general when people are making large bets is one of the uh, most important uh, behaviors to watch for basically when somebody makes a big bet where where are they looking uh, how loose are their eye movements uh when they look you know say they look from their opponent back uh, you know a few times or something in general like the more uh restrained stoic uh behavior will be tied to um you know weak hands bluffs whereas like the more relaxed behavior will show itself as loose movements uh loose eye movements basically like more more dynamic and not as restrained so that's one aspect of eye movement. And then the other one is whether someone's looking at you or not, looking at their opponent or not after, you know, when they're making a big bet. And that can go either way. But in general, uh, it's something you want to watch and see how it showed up before. And when, if you do get a pattern of someone, how they're acting over time, that can be super valuable. And in, in general, uh, looking at an opponent after betting is going to be slightly more tied to strength than weakness, just because most people are more comfortable when they're betting a big hand so they're more likely to engage, interact with an opponent, you know, with, with their eyes, including, and most people, you know, when they're bluffing, want to avoid that, they're uncomfortable, they just want to sit there and not interact with anyone, right? So those kind of things come out. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of variety there, and, and uh, a lot of that you want to keep, you know, some people will be, be very stoic and consistent, so it's it's more like you want to see when people's, uh, one, of the, one of the major things to watch for in general just in general for tells is what where, where people are behave, uh, varying their behavior because if someone's not varying their behavior in different spots you know it's pretty unlikely you're going to find a find a read but the first thing to look for is when people act differently in different spots so seeing someone behave you know just seeing them alter their behavior a good amount in, in, in different spots you know in the same situations over time will give you an idea that you should be looking at that person so that's why in general yeah you'll you'll be wanting to st first study the people that 
seem to have more variety and less consistency in their behavior. You know, that's a that's just a general clue. So on that note, Zach, is the best way to obscure your own tells to basically try to be as consistent as possible in in your behavior and just make sure that you're sort of reacting the same way every time? Or or is it could you be super eccentric and, and try to obscure it that way? Like, which way should you go? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you can go either way, really. Uh, you can be stoic to be consistent or you can be highly variant and, and, you know, eccentric, as you say. And as long as there's no correlations, no one's going to get anything from you. Um, yeah, I, I think the safer route is, you know, being stoic. And that's what more people would, you know, most, most people are going to have a hard time pulling off the highly variant uh, behavior. It's definitely possible. And I have, you know, there's plenty of examples of people who are good at talking and moving around and being loose, uh, you know, without giving anything away. I mean, one one of the big things is just is just knowing the common ways that information can leak, you know, with your physical or verbal behavior. So if you're aware of those ways, you can definitely, you know, play with the rules a little bit and and move around and talk and and not give anything away because, you know, the common ways that, you know, information might leak. I I think what people get into trouble with is when they they try to be fancy with their behavior or, or super loose and they think that they're uh, not giving anything away, but they're just not aware of some of the more common ways that that can, can happen, you know? So I think, uh, you know, for example, some people try to do fancy reverse psychology and trick, trick an opponent, but those kind of things can actually become that person's tells because they're just not aware of how common that kind of reverse psychology attempt is, you know? So they're, they, they're thinking they're doing a reverse tell, but they're actually just having a tell, you know? That, that can happen a lot for, fairly, you know, the more inexperienced players. Yeah, I was going to ask exactly about that, like this idea of reverse tells, because I have to imagine that as awareness of tells grows and people learn things like, OK, if this guy puts on his sunglasses and shoves a bunch of chips into the middle of the table and folds his arm and looks down this is like sort of like maybe a classic bluff because he's trying to look super stoic and badass. But then over time, if everybody sort of believes that that's what a bluff looks like, then theoretically people would change their uh, behavior. So is there sort of like a, is your mental catalog of what sort of classes of tells look like have to be sort of constantly updated, have to sort of anticipate how people might change? No, that's the, that's kind of the interesting thing about it. You would think that that might happen with experienced players who are, you know, operating on these multiple levels and trying to fool people. But really, uh, when it comes down to it, you don't see that much. And the the reason is because if you're trying to fool someone, say you have two good good players playing each other, it's just really hard to predict how an opponent will interpret your behavior. Uh, and so... It helps explain a lot of things, I think, outside of poker, too, because theoretically there's all these levels of deception. But when you get down to it, it's it's just super hard to know how someone will interpret your behavior. And that means, you know, you would have to be very sure that they would interpret it in the way you want to interpret it. And, and that's hard to know because they might see you do something and just pull the opposite conclusion. They might You might be doing something on a second level of meaning, but they're taking the first level of meaning, you know. Or you know some an extra an extra level of meaning. So uh, there's for that reason you just won't see many complex reverse tells. I've, I see it very very infrequently. 
much less frequently than I would have thought, you know, a few years ago. And I think it's just because, you know, it's just for that reason that the, the main strategy is just to be stoic and then occasionally maybe do some very, fairly simple reverse psychology. For example, one common one that I've seen uh, strong players do, but, you know, I think it's kind of died down a bit is like the, it was well known that when someone, someone bets and they call the clock on their opponent, you know, it, basically forcing their opponent to act in a certain time when when a person whose bet has done that typically it shows that they're relaxed right because normally uh, someone who's bluffing wouldn't want to potentially anger their opponent by calling the clock on them so then uh but then you had good players you know who, who recognized that and uh they would sometimes call the clock on other good players because they knew that this other good player might would likely interpret it as this guy being relaxed, you know. And good players also try to take uh, make use of the more of the lesser known tells because they would be less likely to rely on a super well known tell just because then it makes the other guy think, oh, that's a super well known one. He wouldn't be likely to do this because he's pretty decent, you know. So there's these levels of you know basically the good players are going to try to rely more on the on reversing the lesser known tells that most people don't know because they think that'll that's more likely to be interpreted in the way they want by another good player so there's just all that you always have to take into account the skill level of your of your opponent but and that's why it's so complicated because you just don't know how it's going to be interpreted So is anyone capable of fully plugging all their leaks so they don't give out any tells or do the really experienced good players, do their tells just become more subtle? And I guess that sort of also speaks to the sort of broader question of why do humans have tells? Why is it so that even against our best efforts, typically something in our body or our speech betrays the truth that we're trying to, or the lie that we're trying to present? I think in general, if you are experienced, if you've played a lot, I mean, if you know the common ways that information can leak, then I think you're going to be pretty good at being unreadable, you know, except in rare cases and and unusual cases. But I think it's it's easier than most people think. Uh, And I think, um, you know, it, it just basically takes making a concerted effort at understanding what is possible and then focusing on those spots. Uh, I mean, I do think there are, you know, let's say a very experienced live player um, who is, you know, near unreadable, they still can have small tells. You know, for example, a lot of high stakes players uh, like to wear scarves or high collars, you know, to cover up their neck because uh, the neck pulse can be, even for experienced players, making a big bluff, typically in in a tournament. A tournament is usually where that's, it's going to bring it out of people because those are much more higher stakes and a lot more on the line than a cash game, for example. So uh, they'll wear, you know, they'll wear things that cover their neck pulse because uh, you're, you know, you're more likely, experienced players anyway are more likely to have a fast heartbeat when they're bluffing than when they're value betting. They're kind of, you know, value betting in a, in a, when they have a strong hand is kind of old hat to them. But uh, even an experienced player can get their blood pumping in a, in a big tournament spot where there's, you know, theoretically a million, million dollars on the line or something. So I have two questions off the back of that. One is, if you can wear a scarf and sunglasses while playing poker, could you come in and just wear like a ski mask and completely obscure your face? 
And then the other question is everything we're talking about is, you know, physical or verbal tells that you see when you're playing directly across from a person. How much of this is applicable if you're playing poker online? Oh, yeah. Uh, so the first question uh, about the ski mask, there, that's definitely a, you know, a poker tournament or a poker room specific question. I, I mean, I've seen videos of people covering up their faces, but I think most, a lot of places wouldn't allow that. So yeah, it's definitely, uh, I mean, when people do it, obviously it's, it's mostly been a joke, but I'm sure there will come a day when somebody, you know, wants to do that in, in a real situation for a lot of money and then they have to, yeah, I think, I think the, I think the more popular places don't really allow that the popular card rooms cause you know, yeah, but it's a good question. Yeah. How much, how much can you cover up if you can cover up part of your face, you know? Mm. And what about the applicability online? Right. Yeah. I'd say the only uh, behaviors that are meaningful online that, that give information are the immediate uh, immediate actions, basically. Fast bets, fast calls. Those are the bet timing or action timing behaviors that I think contain the most meaning. I'm I don't think there's anything else I can think of off the top of my head unless it's like somebody chatting in the in the chat. I think uh, so basically the and the most meaningful of, of that is the the fast call basically say you bet the flop which is for non-poker players when the first three cards come out and you bet you bet that flop and then somebody calls you really quick in general quick calls early in the hand are going to indicate medium strength to weak hands basically because somebody with a strong hand is generally going to at least consider raising you in that spot because they want to maximize value. So they're going to, even if they decide to call you, they're going to give it a little bit of thought and be like, should I call here or should I raise? So those quick calls can be really meaningful for narrowing down a, a player's range to the to weaker side of their range. And then that can encourage you to keep, uh, keep bluffing, for example, later in the hand. Let's talk a little bit about the psychology of tells as they apply outside of poker. So obviously people have this, now, for whatever reason, an inability often to hide the truth, even when they're trying to obscure it. Sometimes it's as simple as a vein pulsing in their neck that signals a uh, faster heartbeat. What is the, you know, we were talking about earlier, a lot of the lessons of poker are applicable elsewhere. That's why we keep coming back to the subject. So in your research and in your work, what is the sort of uh, abstractable lessons from reading poker tells that might be useful to people off the table? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a tough one to answer because I think poker is such a unique space. I think it's more that uh, the general behavioral, um, you know, being good at being focused on people's behavior in general can make you good at reading people in general in poker or other places. But I think poker is is so unique because it's even even amongst other competitive games. I, I would say po uh, getting good at poker tells will definitely help you with other competitive situations whether it's other games or whether it's negotiations or high stakes um, business meetings or whatever. I, I think there are some takeaways and I've definitely had people tell me they read my books and got better as, as lawyers and as uh, doctors, like understanding, getting more empathetic with uh, how their, how their patients were acting, which was really cool for me to hear because, you know, I didn't have high hopes that it would, that kind of stuff translates to other things. But I definitely think there's a lot of, a, a lot of things that just, makes more sense when you key into them at the poker table. Like for example, the, the eye contact stuff, you know, you can, you can get a lot of information about where people look and if they avoid contact with one person over time, you know, it can tell you that they don't like that person or whatever, you know, there's those kinds of 
little things that come up, uh, signs of discomfort and pauses in speech and things like that. Yeah, I think it, I think it applies to a lot of things, but I think it definitely applies to the more competitive uh, situations. So, Zach, on this note, you actually have your own podcast that that's sort of on this topic about how people in various professions sort of read other people. What's been the most interesting takeaway from that? Like, what's one really interesting anecdote that you hadn't considered before? Yeah, there's a lot. I, I've had a lot of fun with that show. I really liked the interview I did with Mark McClish, who wrote a book called I Know You Are Lying, and it was about statement analysis and he used to do training with the uh, U.S. Marshals and other law enforcement. He wrote books about analyzing written and, and verbal statements. And he was kind of partial influence uh, and inspiration for me writing the Verbal Poker Tells book, you know, kind of taking that really focused idea of focusing on language and, and bringing it to the poker table. Uh, that was partially, you know, I was inspired by him. So that I, I really am a fan of that one. Uh, but just recently I did an interview of a, uh, an experienced restaurant uh uh, industry, uh, service industry worker. He's managed restaurants and everything. And he gives just some really interesting psychological uh, tips on how, you know, wait staff is trained to get better tips using certain verbal patterns. You know, that's something I, I wouldn't have considered. You know, apparently that's like something they do in the in the restaurant uh, chain business, you know, as a common, you know, using these kind of like behind the scenes psychological strategies for putting people at ease and getting better tips and stuff like that. So I, yeah, that, that was my concept for the podcast was just these interesting kind of hidden instances of psychology and manipulation, you know. Zach, before we go, I got to ask, what's the weirdest poker tell you've ever seen? Because some of them are sort of obvious, crossing your arms and looking down. What's something very uh, strange that you've seen? Yeah, you know, I should have a better ready answer for that. But uh, one that just... Uh, came out recently was somebody I, somebody had the most tells I've ever seen in like a short period of time it was from this show live at the bike what they they play on camera with hull cards in, in California at the bicycle casino and I wrote I wrote a piece about it for pokernews.com but it, and uh it was just it was just so many tells of a strong hand basically in such a short period of time like it was basically like six different things I wrote about you know and and called out uh I can't think of a really crazy ones. What but, were they? Uh, oh yeah, they, they were the they were the normal ones, like nothing, you know, nothing too crazy. It was like acting uncertain before making a decent sized bed and like a little shrug behavior and uh, you know all, all these signs of uh, basically that acting acting weak when you're actually strong, you know, those kinds of things. So lots of cliches. Yeah, kind of cliches, but I can't think of anything. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's there's definitely. Uh, some weird ones I've encountered, but nothing's springing to mind. All right. Well, Zachary Elwood, uh, poker tell expert, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you guys. I appreciate it. It's my honor. Tracy, I really enjoyed that episode. I love this idea that the demands of cinematic drama have sort of changed the way people view real life. Because obviously, again, going back to how you would depict a game of poker, tells are probably the most interesting thing you could depict visually, even if the impact on the game in most games is pretty marginal. Right. It's kind of hard to visually depict someone thinking about whether they should draw another card or not. Joe, I got to ask, 
what's your biggest tell when you play? Do you know? Ooh, I really, I do have a problem with my hand shaking. I'm like, and I I have that always, like, if I just, like, pick up a glass or anything or I'm in a slightly uncomfortable position, my people will notice my hand shakes. But it definitely uh, gets accelerated at the poker table. And I think it's typically when I have a winning hand. But now, you know, if anyone hears that, you can't be sure that I'm not trying to psych you out. Oh, yeah, it might be a reverse tell or it could be a reverse reverse tell. We'll never know. Remind me why poker overlaps with finance and markets so much. I know a lot of finance people are competitive and they like playing games for money. So sure, they play poker. But what's the applicability of the things we learn from poker to markets and investing? I think it really has to do with the fact that you can only, it's a very open-ended game and you can only have, you can never calculate the odds perfectly. So there are other games of chance uh, there are other gambling games in which you know the odds going in. So, for example, if you were to play roulette, you know going in the odds that on any given spin, it's either going to be black or red or a specific number, and you could calculate them perfectly. It is impossible to do that in poker because, you know, obviously there's math involved, but you just cannot fully calculate how the humans are going to perform elsewhere on the table. And I think that's like, that's the relevance to markets. Like, we, we know all the data. We're drowning in data, but you can't fully calculate how people are going to behave under periods of extreme stress, under periods of tension and panics, euphorias. There's only so much you can uh, number crunch. And there's a certain element of human judgment, reading the room, reading the table, reading. And that's why people try to, uh, you know, positioning and sentiment, all these measures to sort of get at the aspects of the market that people can't really fully calculate. Mm, the humans are the wild card. Yeah. Oh, look, look, I made a card pun. Oh, okay, great. Very well. All right. Well, we've done an, another episode on poker. So it's it's my turn next week. And we're going to get back to capital flows and emerging markets, I think. Great. I can't wait. <laughs> okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest on Twitter, Zachary Elwood. His uh, handle is a poker player. He's also the host of the People Who Read People podcast, so you should check that out. He discusses psychology and behavior and various activities. And you should follow our producers on Twitter, Topher Forges. He's at Forges T, as well as Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. And don't forget to follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy at Francesca today. Thanks for listening.